Welcome to Piecing It All Together. My name is Bo Sanders, and Randy is on a speaking tour of the Eastern United States. What you're going to get today in episode 44 is a presentation that he did at the Bartimaeus Institute in the Santa Barbara region of Southern California with Ched Meyer and crew. It's called Indigenous Justice and Christian Faith, Land, Law, and Language. It was held from February 18th through 22nd. We're grateful to them for providing us the audio. And I thought about taking this presentation and chopping it up into smaller episodes, but I'm going to let you hear just the entire nearly hour presentation because I think there's something of value to weighing in to what Randy is inviting us to consider that has a cumulative effect. As it goes on, you really begin to feel the weight of it. So I hope that you will share this with anybody that you think might find it interesting or challenging. Find us on Facebook at Piecing It All Together. We love the interactions and the comments and the feedback on the episodes. You can also email us, connect at piecingitalltogether.com. And we want to thank you for your financial support on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you. So I hope that you will enjoy this listen we look forward to hearing your feedback soon. Just, just another quick thing about Edith is um, she's her style, her communication style is not so much a person speaking to a group as much as she likes the relational, um, smaller things. So you can catch her one on one or in one of the workshops she's leading. But she is known to speak from the heart. Randy is known to speak out of his. Great intellectual, great intellectual minds, we'll say. But you, but you too. I love you. I love you both so much. You've changed my life. Thank you so much for all of your hospitality to my family as we stay with you and for the ways that you continue to stimulate us and welcome us along this journey. Let's give a warm welcome to Edith and Randy Woodley. Maybe the microphone needs to go a little lower. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I actually uh, learn from all my students. Um, that's when I come home and uh, Edith asked me first thing, how was your class? If I learned something, then I say it was a good class. So... Um, Thanks for um, allowing us to be here. Edith's going to be on a panel tonight, and uh, um, she she will be probably introduced then. And so um, uh, I'll be uh, with you uh, this morning. This is a, a great place to be. We've heard about Chad and Elaine for so many years, and we've heard about what's going on here. And and uh, it only took us sixty two and a half years to get here. So. Um, I'm really glad, though. This is I. I love everything I see going on. So um, it really is an honor. Um, so uh, th- these are my shameless plugs, I guess. Uh, but it's a funny thing, you know. It's like I wrote these books and stuff, and if I didn't want people to read them, you know, why did I write them? So uh, so anyway, but all of these were written basically for white people. 
So um, they were written for you, if you consider yourself, if you identify as white. So this one I wrote um, in 2000 to help people get a broader understanding, really white kind of pastors and leaders of, of diversity. Um, and then 9-11 happened. I had 40 radio interviews before that. And the main question I would get at that time in these radio interviews was, um, why are you writing a book on diversity? Racism is dead. You know? And then after 9-11 happened, I got no more interviews. And uh, Baker, who originally published this, put it out of print. I'd already sold like 5,000 copies. And, uh, and then InterVarsity picked it up within a month. So um, I was really happy about that. Um, and uh, this one is um, about our, our indigenous harmony way, um, our way that all of our tribes have different ways of talking about it, but it's really akin to the whole Hebrew construct of shalom. Um, and then I take the values from that, and some of that's in there. And then this last one's the book I'm most proud of, um, it's a children's book, and it's called The Harmony Tree. And um, it, it really is written because so many people, um, because I, I talk out of uh, sometimes the other place here. I, I talk intellectually sometimes, right? Um, which I try to unlearn that language again. Uh, but here I thought, I'm going to write this book, but in a way that everybody can understand it. So, so that's what that book's about. So, And it's how to... How to settler colonial people and host people get along. So, and uh, so anyway, that's enough of that. Um, a little bit. I'm not. We're not really supposed to. I've always been taught don't talk about yourself. Okay. So I'm not going to do that. I'm putting this up so you can see. Here's some of my stuff. I especially like this one. Copious body size. Uh, um, So, uh, like I said, it it took 62 years um, to get here. And if you read through some of that, you'll see that there's so many ways that my life and my body and my skin has been a bridge between peoples. And uh, uh, I guess if you could say one thing, like, what am I? I'm a cultural guide. So, uh, my wife and I learn two worldviews, and we operate out of two worldviews. I've always had native identity, but I've always had to explain that because of who I am and how I look. Um, and so, um, it's a, uh, I've never, I was just educated formally later in life. Um, so, there's a bridge there, and it's just a lot of things. Uh, we've experienced a lot of um, racial oppression in our times, our lives, because of uh, speaking truth to power. Um, and uh, and so I'm not that smart, really. Actually, I'm kind of slow on the uptake. But I, th- I think I'm qualified to take you on a journey today. Um, I think I'm qualified as a cultural guide to help you if you will trust me and allow us to find some common ground, we're talking all week about indigenous stuff, right? Um, and it's not an, really an indigenous conference, right? Because this isn't how we would do it if we were doing it, you know. But 
Um, like it would be the most organized, disorganized thing you've ever been a part of. But in that chaos, you know, we would finally figure out what's going on. But, but so I've got this time period and someone will have to, I know I have a watch on my wife made me get that. So we would exercise and keep track of it. But I never look at the time, so um, I need to have at least 15 minutes where we can talk together. Um, and Robert, I think, is going to come up and uh, we're going to lead some discussion or something. So who could uh, let me know like 20 minutes before it's time? Who would do that? This is serious. <laughs> I really won't pay attention. So uh, i got to have somebody do it. So, um, yeah, so uh, if you can... You know, set back, maybe close your eyes if you need to for a minute. Think about your body. Think about your social location. Think about why you're here. Um, think about the, the, the ideas um, that have been talked about so far. Uh, our elder or, uh, uh, talked to us last night about, you know, the, 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 the spirits of the ancestors are here, you know. And you bring things with you. The trees, they, they have spirit. The, the grass out there, the water, the, all of these things. And so, if we're really lucky today, it won't, we won't just hear our own thoughts. We won't just hear our own head. We'll, we'll hear from those around us. And we'll hear from Creator. And... So I'm asking you to get in that kind of a frame of mind as we do this thing. And I, uh, I promise that I won't hurt you. Um, and I may, may you know, do some things that seem uncomfortable, but really it's healing. So, um, so that's the journey. Let me lead you on today. So, um, so um, let me talk for a minute about a place... Um, a great big island. Um, and in that island, they cut down almost all the trees. And they despoiled all the fisheries. And most of the large mammals on land and around the island were going extinct. And the creeks and the rivers were all polluted. And there was trash piled everywhere on this land. And there was a class system. And there was um, so much going wrong. Uh, the coral reefs were dying. The topsoil was disappearing. And then they came from over there to Turtle Island. And 500 years later, history has repeated itself. Because the disease is called a Western worldview. That's what's killing us. That's what will kill our grandchildren. And unless we begin to change and deconstruct that Western worldview, we may not have a future on this. Mother Earth's going to be fine. She'll recover. Right now, she's letting us know. She's not happy. But until we begin to take on more of a worldview, 
of our indigenous people in this land, we don't have a promising future. Um, some of my friends are like, oh, they say, you know, God told them to come over here, you know. And uh, look what happened, you know. And I thought about that, and I I thought, you know, God did. I think maybe God did tell them to come over. But they were supposed to come over and listen. Because they had ruined the earth over there. And I'm hoping that it's not too late to listen. So, we have a story. Um... Uh, among our Cherokee people and uh, I'm going to kind of tell a short version because I know my time's limited so um, but uh, I guess a long time ago the, the animals all lived on this little piece of land it's on top of a mountain we call Blue Mountain and uh, uh, and so they all began to talk and the animals they were a lot bigger back in those days so they were running out of land and so they were like, you know, we gotta, we got to have more land. So they went to Creator, and they said, Creator, you know, we need more land. We're having babies, and we don't have no room, and we're running out of food. And what do we do? There was a crisis going on. And so Creator knew, well, if I just make land for them, they won't appreciate it. So Creator thought, and, and Creator said, I want you to go to the bottom of the water the very bottom and get some some mud I want you to bring it back up and if you bring that mud back up then I'll take it and I'll spread it all over and, and I'll create more land so the animals got together in their council and they said well who's going to go and the first one to speak up was grandmother turtle and she said I'll go get it but no one really said anything, but they thought, Grandmother Turtle's old, and she's slow. You know, we need this thing done quick. So, all of a sudden, Duck stepped forward, and Duck said, you know, I'll go get the mud. So, Duck swam out real quick, and, and, and she dove down. A minute later, she popped back up. So, then she dove down again and she popped back up and she dove down again she popped back up and kind of embarrassed and she come back and and she came back to the land and she said um i guess i'm better at floating than i am at diving so so now what are we going to do so grandma turtle said again i'll go get the mud and this time they said grandma turtle why don't you just hang back for a minute okay who do we have who's really really good at this Otter. Otter's a good diver. Otter's a good swimmer. Otter can go for days without coming up. And so so they went and they said, Otter, would you go? And Otter said, sure, I'll go. So Otter goes and Otter's gone a day, two days. And after three days, Otter comes back and he's way down the shore and he's laying on his back and he's eating a fish. <laughs> and uh, so they, they're like, Otter, what's going on? He said, what do you mean? What about the mud? Otter said, oh yeah, okay, well, let's see. I went after it, and I saw fish, and I followed it. I come back, and what were we talking about? He said. So, 
So they were like, oh man, we got to have somebody else. So Grandma Turtle steps forward again. And she says, let me go get the mud. And this time they, they just kind of got in front of her. And they said, who else do we have? And so Beaver stepped forward. And Beaver said, you know, um, I'll do it. I'm all about work. You know? And I don't even like fish. So I'll go get it. So Beaver goes down and Beaver's gone for one day, two days, three days. The fourth day, Beaver comes back and she comes back to land and she says, it's impossible. It's too far down. We can't do it. There's no hope. And so, you know, everybody was sad. And uh, what are they going to do? They looked around. About this time, Grandma Turtle didn't even say nothing. She just went through the middle of the crowd. She slid down. She was going down. And they said, okay, well, I guess that's our last hope. So she was gone. First day, second day, third day, fourth day. And after the fourth day, they said, squirrel, go up in the tree and watch for her. Maybe she's going to come up somewhere else. So it went... On the seventh day, finally, Grandma Turtle was floating up to the top. Her legs were sprawled out, her head, her tail. She had died. And so Otter and Beaver and Duck went out and they brought Grandma Turtle back and brought her back on the land. And they were all really sad. They were sad you know, for Grandma Turtle and the sacrifice she made. And they were, they were sad that they weren't going to have more land and their future was pretty uncertain. And just about then, someone looked down and said, Hey, what's that in Grandma Turtle's claw? And they looked down and they peeled her claws back and there was a little ball of mud. So they took that mud and they went to Creator. And they said, Creator, here's that mud. And they, they told Creator, what Grandma Turtle had done, and he said, I know. And so, Creator took that mud and spread it out, and in honor of Grandma Turtle, he made it in the shape of a turtle. And they call it Turtle Island now. And uh, and that's the story I want you to remember, because at the end, I'm going to ask you a question. Think about that. So, here's your myth of progress. <laughs> Um, my favorite native author is John Mohawk. He said, for the most part, contemporary historians have proceeded from the presumption that modern people are different from and superior to those who came before, especially those designated as quote-unquote primitives. Distortions and incomplete, even dishonest renderings of the past are found in many modern accounts of ancient peoples and contemporary quote-unquote primitive peoples. These accounts serve to reinforce the sense of difference and to distance moderns from unflattering legacies of the past. And unfortunately, it was most often that Christianity um, furthered that myth of progress. You were conquering America. You spoke of peace, waged a war. While you were conquering America. This is not the table I want to be invited to.
This is the table we've been invited to. This is the table we need to have. Okay. A little bit of timeline perspective. 28,000 years ago. Um, one of the questions that we always debate about was, you know, did we come from somewhere else? A lot of our histories and a lot of our people say we came here from here. I don't know the answer to that. Um, uh, like in my people, we say that, that, that we are the land and the land is us and our language is under every rock. So, um, but what I can tell you is uh, native people don't want white people telling them where they came from. So just remember that. <laughs> um, but here's some of the, just a little bit of a timeline for you. You know, here we are, um, you know, in 3500 B.C., uh, Sumerians settle in Babylon. Um, around the same time in which the Mayan calendar is based upon. Um, that's more accurate than the Gregorian. Um, if some of our people came here, and likely some did, there's at least five entry points. And uh, one of the, besides the Beringia idea, there's uh, the whole kelp bed idea, and there's a lot of different sort of things now. So there's a, in, in sort of a modern uh, thinking, there's at least like five different entry points. So the Beringia theory is outdated. That, that's probably one as well. Just to give you a little more perspective, 1200, the Olmec civilization, and later on, you know, like 500 years later, the founding of Rome, um, which is the cradle of Western civilization, right? So way here, the Edict of Milan declares freedom of religions. <laughs> 1300, native populations estimate over 65 million. So... Um, we learn about all these ancient societies. In fact, you know, we idolize Greece and Rome and, and to some degree Anglo-Saxonism in Britain. Um, and if you don't believe that, just travel into the capital of Washington, D.C. and take a look at all the architecture. Um, and uh, so, but we had all these things going on. You know, we had uh, uh, microagriculture, macroenvironmental management. Uh, just, I'm not going to read every one of those things. Sustainable architecture. Um, we had uh, humanities, psychology, philosophy, religion, theology, rhetoric, um, sciences, math, brain surgery, dentistry. Uh, uh, you know, uh, ways to eat foods that were poisoned, um, urban planning, democratic governments, education systems, intercontinental economic trade, com complex peacemaking strategies. All of that was in America before a white person ever set foot in America. We lived a much healthier lifestyle. Do you know that when the first Europeans came here, they thought germs were spread by taking baths, so they wouldn't, they wouldn't take baths. Um, uh, Queen Isabella bragged that she'd only taken a bath three times in her life. Once when she was baptized and then two other times. When, when uh, Coronado showed up with the Aztecs, they say they held flowers to their noses in order to talk with them. Um, the different, and now we know that germs, we know the whole sort of thing about the truth of germ theory somewhat. Um, more tolerant, we were a much more diverse society than we are in America right now. And there was much more tolerance 
It wasn't a perfect society by any means, but it was much more tolerant and much more healthier. And it was much more healthier for the environment. Our medicines, today over 500 uh, medicines and herbal remedies are used in medical treatment. And that's just a portion of our medicines. Food, 60% of the world's foods originated in the Americas. Um, and here are some, I love corn, potatoes, tomato, uh, bell peppers, chili peppers, vanilla, pecans, beans, pumpkins, cassava root, avocado, peanut, turkey, cashew, pineapple, blueberry, sunflower, wild rice, uh, chocolate, gourds, squash, some melons, sunchokes, etc. Um, so you're welcome. Um, we had great cultures uh, throughout different places. Everything wasn't the same. Um, this is my people, mound-building cultures. Um, there were um, One of my hobbies when I lived in the southeast was to find old Cherokee village sites. We always had mounds. I found 31 different mounds that were undiscovered. Um, and we have one outside of St. Louis. How many have ever been to Cahokia? And they tell you, what a great place that was. They don't tell you that all of East St. Louis was also Cahokia. And that it was raised in order for uh, people to live there. And what they also don't tell you, because they don't believe it, they believe the myth, is that there were hundreds and hundreds of Cahokias. Cahokia housed over 40,000 people. Um, at the time of... Tutankhamun, the Hittite Empire, Hammurabi Code, uh, the Minoan Civilization, Stonehenge, the Shang Dynasty, all of that was Poverty Point, which is one of the great trade centers of the world. Um, it's a, a recognized United Nations uh, World Heritage Site. Um, the largest, most elaborate earthworks anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, in the Southwest, Native American cultures. Um, there's Mesa Verde, which is a later one, um, Pecos National Monument, Old Arrivi in Hopi Land, still inhabited, Chaco Canyon. How many have been to Chaco Canyon? Yeah, this is a, a, a understanding of what it may have looked like uh, some, based on what they find there now. Um, uh, but And I'm going to read this because um, most people can't grasp it unless I read it. Between uh, 8900 and 1150, Chaco Canyon was a major center of culture for the ancient Pueblo peoples. By 1115, at least 75 outlying cities had been built within a 30,000 square miles composing agricultural communities, trading posts, ceremonial sites in San Juan Basin. They were connected to the central canyon to one another by six major Chacoan roads. These main roads extended to at least another 60 roads. Uh, well-researched and surveyed in generally straight routes lit up at night as signal fires. And, of course, with all ancient native sites, served as an astrological observatory. Um, another one uh, in the, um, what, who we call the Pima Papago peoples now, the Hokum culture, um, you know, canals spread through the, uh, from the 17th to the 14th centuries. Networks feeding people. This sophistication equaled those of Near East, Egypt, and China. Um, uh, 500 miles of canals uh, irrigated 110,000 acres. Um, it's, a, it's a better use of water, by the way, uh, than what we see going on now. Um, uh, so it may have supported up to 80,000 people. 
Um, and all of that uh, was going on here in America by these savages who were hiding by, behind trees half naked, you know. So why don't you know about this? And, 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 and whenever I teach this in my courses, the, I, every single class, I've never taught a class where someone didn't say, why didn't we learn about this? Yeah, I'm teaching master's students, and they're like, why didn't I learn about this at least in my bachelor's studies? Why didn't I learn about this? And, and I always give the same answer. You know what that answer is? You weren't supposed to. You weren't supposed to. You, you live in a, a, a mythologized America where native people have to be the, the dumb, poor, cultural other. Invisible. Um, in the where we live right now, the Pacific Northwest Native cultures, um, you know, they didn't need those things because food was so abundant. In fact, the whole coast uh, was so abundant with food. Um, <clears throat> uh, it's the most dense population of any other place in North America was the Northwest, and uh, it may have supported up to a third of indigenous populations. If correct, that meant that it was between 20 and 60 million people. 6,000-year-old record shows that up until the past two centuries, indigenous peoples of the Pacific Northwest never suffered from drought conditions. Societies were one of abundance, not need. And so, so if you, I don't know, I'm assuming, I don't know a lot about California, but I'm assuming it's similar to the coast of Oregon and Washington that, you know, every other valley there was another group right and that was because of such abundance you had the sea you had the ones that that come between salt water and and fresh water and then you had the the things on land all of that to feed you there's lots of food And then I won't talk much about the doctrine of discovery because I know there's going to be a whole lot of things. But just know, if you haven't researched and been reading around here, you need to find out, what's the doctrine of discovery? That was basically the Christian church saying, we have a right to conquer you because you're not Christian. And of course, we were already inhabiting all these lands. And like I like to argue... Who probably under people who probably understood more about Jesus than the Europeans without ever knowing his name. Um, I'm reading the various accounts of the monographs of the explorers and anthropologists. What strikes one is the almost universal hospitality shown by Indian tribes, especially to their white visitors. Um, and he goes on. But basically, that went on until the mid-19th century. And then I think Indian people said, that's enough. I know it took... The Pueblo peoples quite a while before they decided they'd had enough in the 1680. So, um, yeah, so it's this whole idea because that's what we're supposed to do. That's who we are. That's our values is to feed people, to welcome them. And uh, after a while, I guess you learn your lesson. So, um, and I always say hospitality is the first step of shalom. That's where it begins. Here's just a few statistics. Um, and the, the ranges vary, but I've taken the most credible. And, and in 1491, um, uh, you have uh, basically between 65 and 110 million. 1620, 
five to ten million uh, indigenous peoples in the Americas. Um, and then here's the population as it goes uh, in the contiguous United States from 1491 at 24 million, um, 1800, 600,000, 1900, 250,000, and then we're creeping back up. We still only constitute less than 2% of the U.S. population. So what happened? I'm going to go through this kind of quick. What happened? First destructive wave happened before uh, any Western European peoples, except for maybe um, uh, the, the Vikings um, that we know of, uh, Solvay's people, um, some of my own people maybe, uh, made it up into the Maritimes. Um, but basically uh, what happens is there's a, a series of super droughts, especially in the east. And those super droughts uh, cause terrible in, uh, conditions. And basically what happens is, and some estimate that there was up to a 50% population loss during those times. And then when that happened, when this ecological crisis happened, Indian people said, oops, it doesn't make sense for so many of us to live together. We have to separate into bands. And at that same time is when Chaco Canyon, Cahokia Mounds, Okmogee Mounds, Effigy Mounds, Gila Cliff Dwellings, Chichen Itza, and so many other places emptied. And if you watch the, uh, uh, the shows um, on the, you know, the Discovery Channel and things, they'll always go, by some mystery no one understands. They... <laughs> Those are also the, the same type of people who say, if you watch Ancient Aliens, that of course we know that a superior race must have come down from space and built these things because the technology wasn't available to do such fine detail back then. You know. So, um, so these uh, populations were all in their height at that time, and by the 1300s, um, all those uh, large cities had died out. Um, second wave was disease. An unintended but a relished outcome. Uh, why such devastation? I won't take time, but how many um, uh, people are nurses here? Nurses? Okay, so you can explain sometime to your friends and whoever, you know, HLAs. And, you know, we have a, uh, a uh, down here, uh, the uh, uh, Indians have a, only about a 17 human HLA antigens as opposed to Europeans that had about 35. And basically, helper T cells, which, um, as I understand it, and some of my nursing students have explained to me, uh, basically, they either, uh, um, the, the, maybe put it this way, the reason Europeans had such immunity to a lot of the microbes that travel in animals is because um, Europe had gone through a whole time where their animals lived in the houses with them a lot of times. So they were had built up immunities to that, and, um, and we didn't. Um, I talked about this uh, dirty genocide, the, the idea that, uh, um, and some of these things are waterborne. Some of them were spread through the swine. Um, uh, we raised pigs before. Anybody here raise pigs? Three months, three weeks, and three days is all it takes to get about another dozen pigs. And so uh, um, DeSoto and Coronado and all the rest brought those to feed their troops, and they would get loose, and then the microbes would travel from that were brought over from Europe. Rats were brought over from Europe. And, uh, and then they would get into uh, the wild animals, and then people would eat them, and then... Because we were so serious about cleanliness and bathing, um, not the not the uh, the pictures that you see in all the Indian movies today. 
where it's always the dirty face Indian, right? I mean, even the, the newer ones, like what's that one with uh, uh, that we just watched uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio? Yeah, the Revenant. You know, you watch this like these Indian guys never wash their face. You know, what is this? You know, it's like that's not how my people live. You know, it's like, uh, but there's there's a message in that. Um. Uh, so anyway, basically these plagues wipe out about 95% in a lot of places of the inhabitants. Um, and then the third destructive wave was attempted genocide. So Columbus says things in his journal like, All these lands are densely populated with the best people under the sun. They have neither ill will nor treachery. And then he says, And I bet we could take them with just a small amount of people. Yeah, just a small guard. And then um, here's William Bradford of uh, Mayflower fame, second governor of Plymouth Colony. When he finds a whole Ville Wampanoag village wiped out um, and the bones piled and, and they find their stores of corn and those kinds of things and says, The good hand of God favored our beginnings by sweeping away great multitudes of the natives that he might make room for us. And that theology is still here today. We live with it every day. We, this was quoted earlier. Martin Luther King Jr. Our nation was born in genocide. Um, and, and we made it a national policy to uh, wipe uh, Indians out. Moreover, we elevated that tragedy uh, experience into a noble crusade. So, And we still haven't done anything about that, right? So um, Christian mission was a colonizing strategy that the church used. Um, and I just want to read a, one of the uh, premier theologians of the day, Cotton Mather, who's sometimes quoted as the first evangelical. Uh, he said, Though, of the, this is on the uh, massacre of the Pequot and the friendly Pequot village. Those that escaped the fire were slain with the sword, some hewn to pieces, others run through with rapiers. It was a fearful sight to see them thus frying in the friar. In other words, they were burning their houses and uh, and the streams of blood quenching the same. So it was, they were bleeding so much it was putting out the fires. And horrible was the stink and scent thereof, but the victory seemed a sweet sacrifice. And they gave the prayers thereof to God who so uh, wrought so wonderfully for them thus to enclose their enemies. Hallelujah. So how did America come to be? So we all know this, right? Violent land theft, armed removal and relocation, forced breakup of families, outlawing indigenous religion, bureaucratic policies of extermination, uh, assimilation and racism, and rape of the land in our state. Um, from about 1860 to 1878, um, and in Idaho, uh, also the governor's, um, um, you could get uh, $100 for a Shoshone scalp. Um, my wife's people are uh, were Shoshone dog soldiers, the white knives. Um, they would bring a hundred. Um, uh, the women would bring fifty dollars for a scalp, and the children ten and under would be twenty five dollars. The governor of Idaho said Shoshones make good target practice. Henry Clay, uh, you know, always thought of as a, a statesman. We, we kind of think of him as like one of our top statesmen. He said, there was never a full-blooded Indian that ever took to civilization. It's not in their nature. They are a race destined for extinction, and I do not think that they are worth preserving. 
They're inferior to the Anglo-Saxon race, which is now quickly replacing them on this continent. They are not an improvable breed, and their disappearance from the human family will be no great loss to the world. In point of fact, they are rapidly disappearing, and if government should take proper action in 50 years from this time, there will not be any of them left. Wishful thinking. So, uh, how much time do we have left at this point? Five. Five minutes? Oh, okay. Um, so, ethnic cleansing, genocidal repercussions have caused post-colonial stress disorder, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and intergenerational trauma within our people. Right? But we're still here. Um, the results of that colonial plague, you know all those things. You know that we lead the statistics. We in in and all the worst things, the diabetes rates and suicides and you know alcoholism and all those kinds of things. Th- that's the colonial plague. Um, but someone said if we carry intergenerational trauma, then we also carry intergenerational wisdom. It's in our genes and our DNA. I love this verse. Do you Israelites think you're more important to me than the Ethiopians? I brought you out of Egypt. Have I not done as much for... You know, the Philistines from Crete and led the Aramaeans out of Kerr. I kind of worked that out into the New Woodley translation. Uh, Do you white people think that you are more important to me than Native Americans? Asked the Lord. I brought you out of Europe, but have I not done so much for other nations too? I brought the Ketua from the south. I led the Dakota out of the east. So things haven't really changed a lot. Especially when put to the test, there's nothing that makes the government more nervous than Indian people organizing. Uh, I won't talk about UNDRIP now, but if you don't know about uh, United Nations Declarations on the Rights of Indigenous People, um, please look it up, UNDRIP. Um, I won't take the time to talk about us, but this kind of stuff, like we we were chased out of um, our original homeland. We lost 50 acres and and uh, much more um, uh, by a white supremacist group. This is our, this actually is um, the original Cherokee territory. This is um, one of the villages where my grandfather, my grandfather was a village chief and he was moved five times. This is a reconstruction of his. That's now under the Tennessee River. It's in the Tennessee Valley Authority Project. Um, we moved back, created on 50 acres um, uh, land. There's our water. There's our children. And then um, we lost everything. We were chased out by white supremacists and a 50 caliber machine gun. Long story. I won't try to tell now. And because we were holding sweat lodge, talking circles, powwow ceremonies, sobriety, education, job training. And so we found out that being Indian is still a threat. Um, these were our schools. We would have 40 to 50 people come to our schools. Half of them were Indian. Half of the, the white half or non-Indian half um, were people who were involved in one way in the Indian community. So we were having an impact. We were teaching uh, ways to do um, uh, um, jobs and get sober and all kinds of things like that, uh, and uh, and we lost all of that. Here we are. This is, um, you mentioned Richard Twist last night. That's Richard and I on the drum, my son dancing. These are, uh, we had about 100 international students that we were welcoming to America that we did every year. <clears throat> this was one of our schools up here. Um, and we taught a better worldview. I make no apologies about that. 
I'd like to compare them. And so here's how I compare them. Some other time we can go through something like this. But basically the bottom line for Western worldview is the inherent dualism. That's real. Everything else flows from that. We taught our Harmony Way values. Um, you can see how terrible these things are if they were to spread. You know. <laughs> so here's what I want to say. I want to get us in the next three minutes, three and a half maybe. Um, uh, get us the, where do we go from here, right? So my friend Adrian Jacobs says, As in any recovery from a debilitating social culture problem, the journey begins with, Hello, my name is, I have a problem. I'm proposing that Aboriginal culture, worldview, frame of reference, and in this case, Aboriginal Christianity, offers hope to Western peoples. Aboriginal people are not your problem. We are your cure. We are the conscious of your technology. We are the humanizers of your institutions. We matter quite apart from your recognition of our worth. We are a threat to entrenched powers that be who refuse to open the doors of opportunity and choice to all. We are a challenge to the mindset of greed, the avarice of Babylon, calling for the equitable distribution of resources in the spirit of the Jewish year of Jubilee. We are good medicine for you. What's the point of the Grandma Turtle story? When I ask Indian children, you know what the first thing they say is? They should have listened to their elder. So here's a quick paradigm that I want you to just kind of grasp. Um, What must white folks do, both structurally and individually, to heal the relationship between themselves and creator? I would argue that there is a, a, a barrier right now. The land and indigenous people. So basically starts with awareness. An education process led by indigenous peoples in their comfort zone and paid well, by the way. (laughs) Lament. Confession in the public square, speaking truth to power, allowing time for it to sink in. Reparations, the thing that no one wants to talk about. What I call is the rehumanizing factor. Restitution first, then relationship building, justice initiatives, land initiatives, etc. And then here's one that I haven't seen other people talk about, memorializing it. Working together in partnership, retelling the history, codifying or codifying the markers so that we retell a different story together. And it's not necessarily this comes this and this and this. Sometimes it works different ways, right? Restoring relationship. Looking back to go forward. What was the original relationship supposed to be with creator, land, indigenous people of the area? Requires a new paradigm based on re-empowering the host authority of indigenous people on the land. You get that? Re-empowering the host authority of indigenous people on the land. But it may not mean necessarily working with the tribal governments. Because like the native church... Often our tribal governments are a a poor imitation of a bad model. So we need to go back to more traditional forms of government ourselves and decolonize. Constant process of decolonizing the Western worldview of settler colonialism and re-indigenizing to the local, regional, watershed, or as I actually thought, I thought of this, and it's been said before me, the watershed. (laughs) 
indigenous perspective and values. How does this speak to the faith question? How does it speak to your churches? How does it speak to politics, education, economics, ecologies? What is brought from the European tribes and what is discarded? Those are all questions that we have to deal with. And uh, that's my presentation. This is a whole other thing. <laughs>